going to begin reading from verse 13 this morning of Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> it says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for <clears throat> another opportunity to be in your house and to sing praise to your name. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come around your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would empower me now through the Spirit and give me wisdom and guidance as I preach. Lord, it be your words and your thoughts. And that, Lord, you would give us understanding today of your word and Lord, may we learn of you. May we be challenged by your word. May, Lord, we leave this place singing your praises. We just pray that you and you alone be seen now and heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Now, last time we began to look at Acts chapter 13, and we saw that in Acts chapter 13, um, the age of missions is in introduced to us. Okay? This is where the, the missionary journeys begin with Acts chapter 13. It's here that the, the focus, if you like, of the book of Acts changes. Before this, the focus was really upon Jerusalem and upon the Apostle Peter, and now the focus is upon uh, Antioch and upon the Apostle Paul. Um, so Antioch becomes the, the new center, if you like, of the, the Christian movement. Okay? Um, it, it's from here that the decision is made to send forth the very first uh, missionaries. And of course, those missionaries were none other than Paul and Barnabas. We saw last week how they were uh, called by the Spirit for this ministry. Okay? And we had Nathan read those verses to us, verse 1 through to 12 there. Uh, which we looked at last time. Okay, they were they were called by the Spirit, and so the church recognised that call, <clears throat> and the church separated them for the ministry, commissioning them to go. And so the church made this decision, and they sent them forth, and Paul and Barnabas go with the blessing of the church, and they go forth unto first of all the island of Cyprus. We saw on the island of Cyprus, we saw them minister in the city of Paphos. And if you remember, it was there that they first encountered opposition. Okay, the, the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, rose up against them, spoke against their ministry. Okay, they, they had come to uh, preach to the governor. The governor had asked Paul and Barnabas to come and teach him and instruct him. And as they're teaching, Bar-Jesus rose up in opposition, spoke out against them. We're told in verse 8 that he sought to stop the governor from getting saved. It says in verse 8 there, uh, but Alimus, the sorcerer, so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. And so he was doing his best to hinder the work of the Lord. You know, this man, quite simply, as we saw, was a servant of the devil. Okay? He was deceived himself, and he was seeking to deceive others. But praise God, we saw in the end that God judged by Jesus with blindness, and the governor got saved. And that's where we finished uh, last time. 
So really, we've looked at the first two cities. You remember we said there's six major cities that are mentioned, okay, uh, points of interest on this first missionary journey. We had Antioch, where they started with the decision. And then we saw Paphos, we saw the deceiver. And now we come this morning to the next two major cities on this first missionary journey. And so the first of these this morning is Perga. And there we see the desertion. The desertion, look at me in verse 13. It says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. In verse 13 here, we're told that following their ministry on the island of Cyprus, they sail across the Mediterranean to Perga in Pamphylia. And this is approximately 280 kilometers to the northwest of Paphos. It's on the mainland of what we now know as Turkey. So basically they've gone up to Turkey now. That's where they're ministering. Luke doesn't tell us much about what happens in this city, about the ministry in this city at Perga. But he does give us one important piece of information. So we can't really skip over this city because an important piece of information is given to us here that explains things later on in the Word of God. Okay, We're told here that John Mark... Uh, departs from the ministry and returns to Jerusalem. Back in verse 5, we were told that John Mark was with them on this missionary journey. Just go back there, Acts 13, verse 5. It says, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. That's John Mark we're talking about there. So we're told in verse 5 that John Mark had left with them on this journey, gone across to the island of Cyprus. He was involved in uh, the ministry, this missionary journey. And now we're told that after the ministry on Cyprus, in verse 13, we're told that he leaves, he departs, and he returns to Jerusalem. We're not told exactly why it is that John Mark departs here. We're not told exactly why he deserts uh, Paul and Barnabas. You know, several reasons have been offered by the scholars. You know, some have suggested that perhaps he was simply homesick, you know, which is highly likely. Perhaps he was homesick. He wanted to get home after being on the road for this period of time. Perhaps he was also unhappy that Paul was now beginning to take a prominent role. Okay? John Mark, if you realize, is the, the cousin of Barnabas. Okay? And so perhaps he's a bit upset that Paul is beginning to be the leader rather than Barnabas. You see, when they first set out to this missionary journey in verse 2, Luke refers to it as Barnabas and Saul. Okay, verse 2 it says, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. By the time we get to verse 13, there's a total difference. It says, Now when Paul and his company, Barnabas isn't even mentioned, is he? You see, we sort of get the idea here that Paul is beginning to become the major leader of this group, isn't he? Okay, it's Paul who is heading up this ministry. And so some have suggested that perhaps John Mark didn't like the fact that his cousin is taking a back seat. Maybe he took offense at Paul's leadership. It's also been suggested that maybe because he was a devout Jew, he was uncomfortable with ministering to the Gentiles. Again, that's another possibility, isn't it? That he found it uncomfortable ministering to these Gentile people. The final one that's suggested is that perhaps he was fearful. That's probably the one that makes the most sense to me. 
Perhaps he was fearful of what lay ahead of them. You know, fearful of the opposition they were going to face, the, the persecution maybe they were going to face. You know, the reality is that we're simply not told exactly what the reason is for his desertion here. But one thing is clear. Paul didn't appreciate the fact that Mark deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. Paul didn't appreciate the fact that Mark abandoned the work of the Lord. If you go over to Acts chapter 15, it's pretty clear that Mark did something serious enough that Paul uh, doesn't want to ever take him again with him on the, on the ministry. Uh, Acts chapter 15 verse 36, it says, And some days after, uh, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them, uh, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed on Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren and the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches." I'm sure we know that passage well in Acts chapter 15, the, the contention that arises between Paul and Barnabas. And it's over Mark, whether they should take Mark with them on this second missionary journey. You know, obviously, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that Paul was offended by John Mark. He was offended by his desertion from the work, that he didn't go with them to the work, that he turned back. You know, the wonderful truth is, when we look at John Mark's life, is that, you know, this wasn't the end for him. I think that's the, the thing that is highlighted when you look through Acts, you look through the Word of God, the highlight is that John Mark, this is not the end for him. Even though he turns back, John Mark ends up redeeming himself and eventually he's accepted and approved by Paul himself. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 just quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> verse 11 read this it says only Luke is with me take Mark and bring him with thee for he is profitable to me for the ministry now later in life Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 he says that Mark is profitable for the ministry so obviously he's redeemed himself in the eyes of Paul hasn't he redeemed himself in the eyes of many and Paul says he's profitable for ministry you know that's the grace of God at work isn't it grace of God at work in the life of Mark you know God didn't give up on Mark Mark he he faltered you know he turned back from the ministry he gave up but the Lord didn't give up on him did he that's the wonderful thing isn't it he turned back but God didn't turn his back on Mark you know indeed Mark ends up writing for us the gospel of Mark the Lord uses him mightily to his glory his story really is one of encouragement for all of us. It really is. It's an, it's an encouragement for all of us that even when we turn back, we lack faith, we, we seemingly fail the Lord, you know, God doesn't give up on us. It's not as if we're, you know, that's our one chance and God's never going to use us again. God's never going to uh, give us an opportunity again. You know, the reality is that God does restore us in love, doesn't he? And God does want to still use us he lifts us up he encourages us and he wants to use us just like he ended up using john mark mildly to his glory and so we see the, the 
uh, here in uh, Perga, we see the deserter, John Mark. Secondly, this morning, we come now to Antioch in Pisidia. And here we see the disputation. The disputation. This is verse 14, right down to verse 52. And we're going to try and cover all these verses in the second part of the message this morning. Uh, but let's just read verse 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So from Perga, Paul and Barnabas now, they depart and they travel to the north, another 160 kilometers or so, to a city called Antioch. And it's important we understand this is not the same Antioch as mentioned at the start of chapter 13. This is not where they were sent from. This is a totally different city. Uh, Antioch apparently was a very popular name for cities in ancient times, okay, in the times of Paul and Barnabas. It was a very popular city. In fact, it's recorded there was at least 16, possibly even 17 cities by the name Antioch. And so it was a very common name for cities. You know, thankfully, we only have two mentioned in the book of Acts. It would be a bit complicated if we had all 16 or 17 mentioned, wouldn't it? It would become very confusing. We only have two. We have Antioch in Syria, where they were sent from, and we have Antioch in Pisidia. So this Antioch is located in modern-day Turkey. That's where we are. That's where they're ministering. That's where this Antioch is that they've traveled to. Um, if you remember Darren's son's lesson a few weeks ago, he had the map up there and he showed us where they went up to Antioch there, and that's where it is in Turkey. So this Antioch, as I say, is located in modern-day Turkey. And upon arrival in this, this city, Paul and Barnabas, they head to the synagogue to minister uh, there, uh, you know, to preach and teach concerning the Lord. You know, this was the common thing they did, wasn't it? When they went to a city, they went to the synagogue because that was the place where teaching was happening. That was the place to go to try and spread the gospel message. So we see them go to the, the synagogue to teach. Just read again verse 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. So they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and when it comes time for people to stand up and teach, Paul takes the opportunity. Okay, as we've we've said before in the synagogues, there was time given for people to stand up and to speak. Okay, and that's what happens here. Paul is given the opportunity and he stands up and he delivers uh, his first sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts. Okay? What follows now is a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul to these people here in Antioch. And this sermon can be divided, if you like, into three parts. So we're going to briefly look at each of these parts this morning. The first part of his sermon is the preparation. Preparation in verse 16 down to verse 25. Paul begins his sermon here by preparing the hearts of the people. That's where he starts. That's where he begins. He begins by preparing them to hear the truth. You know, he doesn't just dive straight into the gospel. He doesn't just drive straight into talking about Jesus Christ crucified. He starts before that preparing them, leading them up to this. And so he does this by taking them briefly through the history of the nation of Israel. In doing this, what Paul does is he shows not only his extensive knowledge of the scriptures, 
because he highlights for us how much he knows about God's word. But he also shows to us that God had a plan. It's really what he's doing here. As he takes them through the history of the nation, he's showing them that God had a plan that involved Christ. The whole way along, it was all about the Lord, Jesus Christ, coming to earth. And he begins by recounting for us the choosing of the patriarchs and the deliverance from Egypt. Just read me verse 17. It says, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm, he brought them out of it. So he begins with the choosing of Abraham, choosing of uh, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel. God chose them. Then he mentions how they're in Egypt. Then God brought them out with a strong hand. God delivered them from Egypt. Verse 18 and 19, he then highlights their wilderness wanderings and the conquest of Canaan. Verse 18, it says, And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. So now he mentions the wilderness wanderings. He says, God suffered your manners in the wilderness, your rebellion, your whining, your whinging. He suffered it put up with them for 40 years, brought them through the wilderness, and then he brought them into the land of Canaan. He says, God gave you the land. God conquered the nations there. Verse 20 to 22, he then speaks about the time of the judges and the kings. Verse 20, it says, uh, And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. When he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So now he takes them through the judges, the, the period of judges over Israel, and then leading up to Samuel. And then you had the first king, King Saul, who was rejected because he wasn't what God wanted. And then David... He's put on the throne. David, the, the one who was a man after God's own hearts. So he's taking them right through, very briefly, the history of the nation of Israel. And I'm sure when Paul did it, he probably was a lot more in-depth here. Luke's given us a summary almost, isn't he, of Paul's message. He's taking us through the history. And he's led right up to verse 23. Okay? And it culminates here, if you like, the history. What does it culminate with? It culminates with Jesus, the Messiah. It says in verse 23, of this man's seed, David, okay, of this man's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, his whole point here is pointing to Christ. He takes them through the history. The whole way along, he's making it clear that God has done these things for Israel. Now, you read through that, those verses again, you see that it's constantly saying, He, He. God did this, God did this, God did this. The whole way through, he's pointing out that God did all this for Israel. And God did all this leading to this one that is the seed of David, the Messiah, and he says it's Jesus. He says Jesus is the Messiah. It was God who had chosen them. It was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. God was in control. God had a plan, and it culminated with the Messiah coming to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24 to 25, Paul, if you like, makes a connection with the present. 
as he points to John the Baptist as being the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 24, it says, When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled that course, uh, sorry, his course, he said, Who think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. He makes a connection now. He points to John the Baptist as being the forerunner of the Messiah. You see, every pious Jew knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. They knew that. They understood that it was to be of David's lineage. And they also understood that a prophet was going to come to announce his arrival. And Paul says that prophet has come. It was John, and he pointed to Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So what Paul has done here is he's very briefly prepared their hearts, hasn't he? By taking them through history, showing how God was in control, showing them God's plan through history. God's plan was what? The Messiah coming to earth. Taking them through that plan and showing them, declaring to them that Jesus is the Savior, is the one that they've been waiting for, they've been looking for. And having done that, Paul now declares unto them the gospel message message of salvation so that's the second part of his sermon here the declaration declaration verse 26 down to verse 37 let's just read verse 26 it says men and brethren children of the stock of abraham and whosoever among you feareth god to you is the word of this salvation sense he begins this section here in verse 26 by calling for their attention to what he's about to follow now he declares unto them, he says, the message of salvation is for you. He says, pay attention, this is for you to listen to. This is for you to respond to. You see, this was their opportunity. It was their opportunity to receive the message and be saved. And basically Paul is exhorting them not to make the same mistake as the leaders in Israel did. Now the leaders in Israel had rejected Christ. He's exhorting them here, he's saying... Don't make that same mistake to you is the word of salvation. Listen, pay attention. Make the right decision. Respond. And Paul then goes on to declare unto them the gospel message. And he begins with the leaders rejecting the Messiah, rejecting Christ and put him to death. Verse 27. It says, For they, for they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew not him, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. He points to the leaders of Israel and the fact that they crucified this one, Jesus, who is the Messiah. He says, you know, that they failed to recognize Christ as the Messiah. Why? Because they failed to understand the Scriptures. He says in verse 27 there, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. You see, they didn't understand. You know, the, the problem wasn't that they didn't know the Scriptures. The problem was that they didn't understand the Scriptures. You know, they'd heard... They'd read the message of the prophets, but they lacked understanding. And so when the Messiah came, they were blind. 
They were ignorant. They didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. And because of this lack of understanding, they killed their Messiah. But you know, Paul points out here that in doing so, they actually fulfilled the promises. They actually fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Verse 27 at the end there says, They have fulfilled them in condemning him. Verse 29 as well. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him. Paul says they were ignorant, they condemned him, they put him to death, but in doing so, they actually fulfilled the prophecies. They fulfilled what God said would happen to the Messiah. You see, Paul makes it clear here that this was part of God's plan. He just showed them how God in history was leading towards the Messiah coming, and he says, and Christ's death was part of that. Christ's death was not unexpected. It was expected. It was promised. It was part of God's eternal plan. And the leaders through ignorance had become instruments used to fulfill God's plan. You know, praise God, that's not where it ended. You know, verse 30, Paul now makes the glorious declaration. He says, but God. Isn't that wonderful, isn't it? But God raised him from the dead. Paul declares to them now the wonderful truth of the resurrection. He says, your leaders, the rulers in Israel, they rejected him through ignorance. They crucified him. They fulfilled the promises, the prophecies. But God raised him back to life. He's not still dead. He's not still buried. God raised him back to life. You know, these are glorious words. The rulers of Israel had done their best to fight against Christ, hadn't they? And in doing so, fight against God. But in the end, God triumphed. Christ rose triumphant over sin and the grave. The resurrection of Christ is a crucial event, isn't it? It's the crucial point. If Christ isn't risen, then we have no salvation. If Christ isn't risen, then he's not the Messiah. So Paul makes it clear, Christ is alive. In verse 31, Paul now points to all the witnesses, the eyewitnesses. He says in verse 31, And, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses under the people. He points to all the eyewitnesses. He says all these people saw him alive, and they are witnesses that he is alive, as he said. You know, Christ spent 40 days revealing himself to the disciples, didn't he? After his resurrection, he spent 40 days on earth revealing himself. And there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The proof is there that Christ is alive. And therefore, he is the Messiah, and therefore he is the eternal Son of God. That's what Paul is pointing out here. He's saying Christ is alive. He is the Messiah. He is the one that God promised would come. And Paul then declares how the resurrection was the fulfillment of prophecies concerning the Messiah. Verse 32 to verse 37. Let's just read it. He says, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning uh, that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he'd served his own generation by the will of God, fell in sleep, and was laid under his fathers, and saw corruption. But he, who God raised, uh, raised again, saw no corruption. Now Paul, he now points out that the resurrection is the fulfillment of the scriptures as well. He, sh- he showed them that you know the, re- the death was the fulfillment of the promises of the the prophecies and now he says the resurrection is the fulfillment as well god knew this was happening god this is all part of god's plan that christ would rise again the messiah would die be buried and rise the third day and paul does this by pointing to three old testament passages to demonstrate that the messiah must rise again in verse 33 he points to psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 where it's declared thou art my son this day have I begotten thee? Let's read uh, verse 33 again. It says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul takes Psalm 2, verse 7, and he applies it to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's applying it to here. He applies it to the the resurrection as demonstrating that Christ truly is the unique Son of God. He says the resurrection proves that He is the begotten Son of God. He is the one and only. The resurrection declares Him to be who He claimed to be. Declares Him to be God's only begotten Son. In verse 34, He then quotes from Isaiah 55 and verse 3. Verse 34, it says, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Paul refers to the covenant that God made with David. Okay, God had said that he would give him the sure mercies. Okay, and here what Paul does is he says that the Messiah is that one that God will give the sure mercies of David to. God had promised David that from him the Messiah would come and the the throne would be established forever. That was God's promise, wasn't it? To David, to his descendants. Paul points out in this verse, he points to this verse and he says, Christ as Messiah is risen and he can never die again and he must now reign forever. He must now have the sure mercies of David. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then the final quote is in verse 35, where he quotes from Psalm 16, verse 10. Verse 35, it says, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Yeah, this verse declares clearly the Messiah must rise again, doesn't it? Thy holy one shall not see corruption. Verse 36, Paul makes it clear. He says, you can't be talking about David. David's dead. David's buried. David's body has seen corruption. So it can't be talking about David. He says it's not talking about him. It's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah. The descendant of David, the the king, the one who the sure mercy of God will be given to. And therefore the Messiah must first die before he can rise again. And so he's tying it all together, isn't he? Paul's making the point clear, Christ must die, be buried, to then rise again in fulfillment of all these prophecies. Paul's point is clear, Jesus is the Messiah. He was unjustly put to death, but God proving 
Jesus to be his son fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures and raised him back to life. Now basically what Paul has done here is he's declared to them the gospel message, hasn't he? Christ died, was buried, and rose again. He's done it in a very Jewish way. He showed them that it's the Messiah who's died, was buried, and rose again for them. So having declared to them the gospel message, Paul now makes the application. That's the last part of his sermon, the application, verse 38 to verse 41. Let's just read it. It says in verse 38, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despises, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. You know, having declared unto them the good news, all that remain now is for Paul to make an application. You know, that's what you do with a sermon, isn't it? You make an application at the end, and that's exactly what Paul does here. He makes an application. He tells them here that through faith, two blessings can be theirs, that the law could never give them. Those blessings are the forgiveness of sins and justification before God. In verse 38, he declares that through Christ is the forgiveness of sins. He says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, the one I've been talking about, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news for all mankind, isn't it? That because of the substitutionary death of Christ there on the cross, we can have our sins forgiven. But not only that, through faith we can also stand before God justified. That's verse 39. He says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now justification is the act of God whereby he declares the sinner not guilty. And it's done in Christ Jesus. It's by Him. It's just through Christ that we can now stand before God righteous. Not in our own righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Paul declares to them here. He says, through Christ you can stand before God justified. You know, this was something the law could never do. That's what he says at the end of the verse. There. He says, you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law could never do this for them. This is something that could not be found in trying to keep the law. The law just shows you a sinner, doesn't it? It shows you how bad you are. But Christ, because of his death, has made it possible for all mankind to be forgiven and to be justified. In verse 40 to 41, Paul warns them not to reject this chance, not to reject the gospel. He says in verse 40, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of, in the prophets, behold, you despises and wonders and perish. Uh, sorry, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. You know, Paul warns them against failing to recognize the work of the Lord. He says, "Don't reject this chance. Don't reject the gospel message. Don't be a despiser and perish because you reject the work." 
See, if they rejected the message, there was no forgiveness to be found before God. There was no other way to come to, to, come to the Lord but through a simple gospel message. And so Paul makes this challenge to them. He says, beware. Make a decision today. Don't reject the gospel message. And the result of Paul's message is now seen in the concluding verses. Verse 42, right down to verse 52, we have the response to Paul's message. And we'll go through these verses very quickly. You see, the response to Paul's message is mixed. It's mixed. There are some who accept, and there are many who reject. Now, there are some who receive the message with open hearts. Let's just start in verse 42. It says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many Jews and um, religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came amongst the whole city to sorry, came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. You know, here we see there's some who have soft hearts, don't they? They have soft hearts and they, they hear, they receive the message. The Gentiles in particular here have a soft heart. They want to know more. They want him to come back next week and give us more of this. Tell us more about Jesus and what he's done for us. In verse 43, it says that Jews and proselytes, so some of the Jews, some of the proselytes also, have soft hearts and receive the message. They follow Paul and Barnabas. You know, evidently, these ones are all so excited about the message that they tell everyone else, don't they? There is a response. There is a result. Because in verse 44, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city. So these ones have gone away rejoicing and they've gone telling their friends. They've said, come back. Come and hear Paul speak next Sunday. Well, on the Sabbath, it was a, a Saturday. But come and hear him speak. Come and hear Paul speak on the words of the Lord Jesus. So there is a response that was good, isn't there? A response that Paul and Barnabas could rejoice in. But you know, at the same time, there was many who rejected the message. It wasn't as if, as if everyone accepted it. Verse 45 describes how many of the Jews were filled with envy. It says in verse 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. You know, many of the Jews didn't like what they saw. They responded with envy. They were upset. They spoke against Paul. They didn't like the fact that Paul and Barnabas were having such an effect. You know, they were getting so much attention. They also didn't like the fact that Paul and Barnabas were preaching the grace of God unto the Gentiles. So they spoke out in opposition you know, Paul and Barnabas, in response, made it clear that because they rejected the message, they, the message now is going to go to the Gentiles. Verse 46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles that thou shouldest be for salvation under the ends of the earth. The Jews primarily, most of them, rejected the message. And so Paul and Barnabas said, the message then will go to the Gentiles. We turn and we'll preach unto the Gentiles because they want to hear it. They want to receive it. 
you know, verse 48 makes that clear. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were, were ordained to eternal life believed. The Gentiles, many of them get saved. They're rejoicing. They're, they're loving the message. The Jews, most of them rejected us. And the passage here concludes with Paul and Barnabas being chased out of town. Chased out of town, but you know, they don't let it discourage them. They don't let it get them down. Instead, we're told they shake off the dust of their feet and they continue on rejoicing. Just read verse 49 to the end. It says, and the, word of the, um, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region by the Jews, stirred up the devout and honorable women and that the chief many of the men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. You know, they're chased out of town. Chased out of town through persecution. But they don't let it get them down, do they? They shake off the dust of their feet and they march on forward to the next town, Iconium, with rejoicing in their heart, ready to preach again the gospel message. And beloved, like Paul and Barnabas, you know, we've been given a message to declare to the nations, haven't we? We've been given a message to declare unto the unsaved, to our city, to those around us. You know, the message that Paul preaches here, if you like, is almost a template. It's a pattern for how we should present the gospel. You see, we need to begin in the same way by showing people God in history, don't we? We need to prepare their hearts, don't we? Show them that God is the creator. Show them that God had a plan for mankind and that God's plan was the Lord Jesus Christ we have to prepare their hearts to receive the truth we then secondly need to declare to them the gospel message just like Paul did very simply show them that Christ is the eternal son of God he came to earth to die for us upon the cross that he was buried and rose again we need to show people the gospel message and then we need to very simply apply it don't we make the application Make the application and show them that through faith in Him, they can be forgiven and they can be justified. Through faith in Christ and what He's done for them. Beloved, as I was thinking about it this week, you know, when we do present the gospel, when we prepare their hearts and we declare it and we apply it, there is going to be a mixed response. That's the important thing we need to understand, isn't it? There is a mixed response. Response. There will be some who have soft hearts and they accept it by faith. But at the exact same time, there will be those who reject the truth. You know, Pastor preached about it this morning. People's hearts are darkened. They're, they're full of foolishness. They can't see the truth. There will be many who reject the truth and they, they stand up in opposition. But beloved, we must realize that you know that's not our job. You know, our job is to preach the truth faithfully to declare it unto them faithfully god is the one who gives the increase isn't it god needs to do the work in their hearts we just have to faithfully preach it if they reject the gospel then that's their problem isn't it we preached it we did our part we faithfully declared the truth beloved we mustn't let it get us down i think we do at times we become discouraged because we preach the gospel and it seems like people are rejecting it and many will but there's always those few to receive it by faith and we can rejoice in the work of the Lord. 
Don't let it get us down and discouraged when men reject the truth, but rather like Paul and Barnabas, put it behind us and march on forward for the Lord. Keep, re- keep rejoicing, keep on serving him, keep on preaching faithfully the truth, the message of the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I know we covered a, a large portion this morning of your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would uh, Lord, sink it into our hearts. Lord, we would gain an understanding of your word this morning. The Lord, we would learn uh, from this passage. May we go forth with the gospel message. May, Lord, as we declare it, may we prepare people's hearts, showing them who you are and showing them that they are sinners before a holy God. May we then declare simple to them the gospel message that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And we make the application. And, Lord, we pray for you to give the increase. And we pray that you'd help us to, as a church, be encouraged, Lord, knowing that you are working through that simple gospel message. May we continue to be faithful as we serve you, we pray in Jesus' name.